Today's sermon is having a holy sense of humor. Our main text is going to be Isaiah 14, uh, verses 3 through 11. You'll have an insert with that, and your bulletin will be on the screen as well, as well as on page 577 and 78 of your pew Bibles. But before we jump into the text, I think it's important that we lay uh, some ground rules, we do some work before we get in. So often, you'll hear of people quitting their Bible reading plans, like in Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, when we get into laws, and maybe it's a little tedious. But if you've made it through those books, you've probably come to the prophets, and you go, this is almost harder. (laughs) At least I understand sort of what's going on in the uh, earlier law books. Uh, So what I want to do today is give you some principles for prophecy principles for interpreting prophecy to help you kind of navigate and help us navigate this passage in Isaiah. So principles for prophecy. Principle number one, biblical prophecy usually has multiple fulfillments. Biblical prophecy usually has multiple fulfillments. If you've ever driven into the mountains, what you'll notice is that you approach a mountain range, and it all sort of looks the same distance away. And a prophet is looking into the future the same way. A prophet sees the mountain range, but doesn't see the individual mountains. And as you approach the mountain range, what will happen is all of a sudden, one mountain will start to just fly towards you, and then you pass it, and all the other mountains are still behind it. And prophecy works the same way. The prophet is simply pointing forward to the mountain range, and then there are multiple fulfillments, fulfillment over a long period of time, that occur. So often, because it's such a dense, the passages are so dense, the words are so dense, it's like dense poetry, we think that it's all going to happen really quick, like in a flash, that it's going to be one and done. But the reality is that things come slowly, slower than we would like. This is the same mistake that the Pharisees made in the first century. They thought the Messiah was going to come and establish a new kingdom. He was going to knock down the Roman Empire. And the reality is that the kingdom of God is is like a mustard seed that starts really small and grows, or like leaven and bread that spreads through. It's not coming in a flash. It comes slowly. And there are even multiple fulfillments of the same prophecy. For example, in Isaiah, there's a prophecy of a child, a coming child. And Isaiah actually has a son that fulfills part of that prophecy. We'll probably talk about that during Advent. But as you know, the true child, the true fulfillment of that prophecy is Jesus, the coming child that will establish the kingdom of God. So principle for prophecy number one, biblical prophecy usually has multiple fulfillments. Principle number two, God has one people. God has one people. So some people hold to the idea that God has separate purposes for Christians and ethnic Jews. This idea has particularly gotten popular the last 50 years or so in America. And someone that holds this position would say that God has an earthly people in Israel and a heavenly people in the church, and that the Bible actually gives us two stories a story about Israel and a story about the church. And part of our job 
and understanding the Bible is figuring out what applies to Israel and what applies to the church. But that's uh, not what the New Testament says about God's people. There are uh, several places we can go, but uh, my favorite, and I think the clearest, is in Romans. So you remember in Romans 4, uh, Paul says that the children of Abraham are those that believe. It's not his physical offspring, although certainly some of his physical offspring believe, but belief is the standard for being a part of God's people. And in Romans 11, we see this image of an olive tree, and this represents God's people. And when Jesus comes, unbelieving Jews are cut off from the olive tree, and believing Gentiles are grafted in. You'll notice there's not two trees, there's one tree. So when we look at Old Testament prophecy, we shouldn't be primarily looking at what happens in modern-day Israel, although that's important. God has a plan for modern-day Israel. But Old Testament prophecy is not primarily about the modern-day state of Israel. God has a plan like every other nation, but it's not the focus of of biblical prophecy. True Israelites, according to Paul, are those that believe. So how does this apply to you? Well, first of all, Old Testament prophecies almost always have their final fulfillment with Jesus. So there are certainly other fulfillments that happen uh, really close to when the prophet is prophesying, but most of the time, the final fulfillment is in Jesus, just like the child in Isaiah. Second, when promises are made to Israel, if you believe in Jesus, you are a part of that body. Very rarely is a promise made to Israel that's not finally fulfilled in Jesus, and you are united to Jesus. So the words that we're about to study, and this is important, the words that we're about to study are your words. They're words that you can use, that you have access to. They're not relegated to a, a certain ethnic group, but for all who believe. So you remember our two principles, biblical prophecy usually has multiple fulfillments, and God has one people. So with these principles in mind, with these set out, um, let's turn to the text and read it. Isaiah 14, verses 3 through 11. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes against us. Shale beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, You too have become weak as we. You have become like us. 
pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So the faithful taunt. What's the nature of it? What does it mean for us? How do we handle this? Our passage in Isaiah 14 is in a section of Isaiah dedicated to the nation of Babylon. At the time of the writing of Isaiah, it's interesting that Babylon actually isn't the predominant power in the ancient Near East. Assyria is the the predominant power in the ancient Near East. But as Isaiah's ministry grows and continues, Babylon starts to get stronger. And although Isaiah deals a lot with Assyria, and Assyria will come very close to taking Jerusalem, Assyria ultimately fails. King Hezekiah turns to God, prays to be saved from the Assyrians, and then God strikes them down and sends them away, and Jerusalem is saved. But where Assyria failed, Babylon will eventually succeed. And Babylon is the city who will completely decimate Jerusalem. They'll knock down the temple, they'll send all the people in exile, they'll knock down the walls. And Babylon, in the Old Testament, and will become in the New Testament, is a symbol of death, a symbol of destruction. It's hearkening back, the the word Babylon is hearkening, hearkening back to the Tower of Babel, where God confused the languages of the people. And so Babylon stands high and above Assyria as a symbol of judgment, as a symbol of darkness, as a symbol of the kingdom of evil. And so when we come to this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 14, what's happening is that God is judging, pronouncing judgment on Babylon for their evil, which, by the way, he's Uh, He's brought about, God has brought about this evil. Um, That's a whole other sermon, but um, that's the context that we're dealing with. So what's the nature of the taunt? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil, and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Taunt is an interesting word. I don't know if we use it very much anymore. Um, and there's actually some debate about how to translate this, but I think that the ESV got it right here. The, the big idea is that it's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to teach a lesson. It's supposed to be amusing. It's the sort of thing that you would like hear at a tavern with a bard, right? Or it's the sort of thing maybe that you would hear sung about Ole Miss on a Friday night here, right? It's something pithy that you're supposed to chuckle at. It'd be something, if you know the story of the boy who cried wolf, right, the main character of that story is kind of a bad dude. And the point of the story is that we all make fun of him for doing something dumb. And so this is what the the taunt is supposed to communicate, that Babylon has fallen, and we're supposed to kind of make fun of Babylon. 
You'll also notice that this taunt is designed for a certain situation. Um, the Bible gives us words and songs and prayers for all different sorts of situations. But this one is for the end of a battle, for the end of a war, for times when God's people are freed from their oppressors. They're freed from slavery. And it's words of victory. So what are these words? Look at verses 4 through 6. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. So the place we begin is not actually dealing with Babylon. It's a recognition of our king's victory. Yahweh, the true king, the God of Israel, has defeated all the pretenders. The oppressors have been deposed, the bad kings have been overthrown, and there's peace. If you remember uh, back in our sermon series in Mark, we talked about what the word gospel really means. And gospel is not a word that is unique to the New Testament. It was a word that would, would have been known at the time. And you have, for example, the gospel of Caesar, that he's uh, made peace, that he's made peace on earth. And so what we're looking at here is a gospel, a declaration that our king has made peace, that our king has defeated his enemies. And so already, at the beginning here, we see the gospel preached. Another thing you'll notice is the people have peace, but the people are simply messengers of that peace. They did nothing to achieve it. They couldn't do anything. They were slaves. They were oppressed. The true peace, the true shalom, comes from the Prince of Peace. God is the one who achieves it. We didn't do it. Israel didn't do it. God is the one who achieves the peace, and we simply proclaim it. We enjoy it. We're united in it. We get to proclaim his peace. But it doesn't stop there. If you look at verses 7 and 8, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. So the peace of God is not just for the people. It's for the whole earth as well. Um, You've probably noticed this before, uh, but war takes its toll on the earth. The reason the trees are rejoicing is because they're not being cut down anymore. When there's war, the kings go and they cut down trees to build warships. They cut down trees to build spears, to build siege engines, to build walls and defenses, to build chariots. And they will clear a forest to strengthen their position, protect their people, to protect their land. And in protecting their land, they destroy it. So that the trees aren't being cut down, that the the forests aren't being cleared, means that the war is over. And there aren't any challengers. Now, does this mean that the earth is just uh, left to its own devices? No. 
We're called to guard and keep the earth, to subdue the earth. But the difference is war and death and sin destroy. They kill the earth. But when we cultivate, when we do God's will, the earth is renewed. So trees don't like being made into spears. But maybe they, they are okay with being made into art. And uh, this is the difference between um, what's happening under the rule of the oppressors. There's war and the trees are being destroyed. But under the rule of the new king, the earth can flourish. And it's used, but it's used for good. And it's used in a way that brings about more life, more beauty, and more peace. And so we see an absolute victory of the king. The trees are rejoicing because the earth finally has a chance to recover and to flourish. It's easy to think that our sin only affects maybe us and um, those around us that are offended. But the impact is so much bigger than that. Part of the curse of sin is that it's hard to dig in the ground. Our sin literally gets into the dirt. It gets into the water. And so Paul says the whole creation groans for the day of the Lord because the earth itself suffers under the effects of our sin. And so this is an apocalyptic taunt. We're rejoicing with the total victory of the king, with the total renewal of the earth, and the trees themselves rejoice. And so, yes, this is ultimately talking about the fall. This is talking about the fall of Babylon. But ultimately, at the end, it's talking about the fall of the evil one and of his kingdom of sin and death. And the earth will finally be renewed. So we have this great proclamation of peace, this great proclamation of the victory of our king, and only then do we come to verse 9. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises them from their thrones, all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to shale. The sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you. And worms are your covers. So only now, after praising God for his victory and proclaiming his gospel, do we bring our attention to the object of our taunts. We see the king of Babylon falling into shale. This is the place of the dead. And it's interesting because he's not alone down there. There are other dead kings. There are other dead rulers. People that God has also overthrown. And they stand up to meet him. You notice what they say to him. They say, you have become like us. This should remind you of Genesis 3. What does the serpent tell Eve? He says, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of 
knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like God. And then later, God says, when he's cursing them, he says, they have become like one of us. Like us. So what we're looking at is a reversal of that. We're looking at a reversal of what happened in Genesis 3. The king of Babylon functionally wanted to be God. He wanted to be the ruler of everything, the ruler of all people, the ruler of the earth. He wanted to be like God. And what happens when we want to become like God? We become like the dead. We become like dead rulers. And we lay in a bed of maggots and worms. So the final result of that impulse, the final result of our desire to be like God is that we become like the dead. We become the furthest thing from God. And here's Isaiah's sense of humor. Here's God's sense of humor. Here's the irony is that the very thing we pursue becomes the thing that kills us. Instead of becoming like God, we fall short and become like dead kings. Buried and worthless. But we have a Savior. And these are our words. They're not uh, directed at us. They're directed at someone else. We have a victorious king the victorious Savior who rescues us from the dead, who brings us back to life, who gives us eternal life, and frees us from that penalty. So the taunt, we have a proclamation of the gospel, a proclamation of the victory of the king, a proclamation of the peace on earth, and only then do we turn our attention to the damnation of the evil one to the damnation of death and of sin. So what does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with your holy sense of humor? Well, first of all, remember that there's good biblical precedent for taunting your enemies. But you need to remember who your enemies are. Ultimately, we have one enemy. We have the prince of darkness, Satan, We have the death and the sin that he tempts us with. But because we've been made alive in Christ, we can join with Paul in his taunt. Death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your victory? Death has no power over us. And our king is victorious. He's defeated death. And this the object of our taunts, the one who seeks to defeat us. So the object of your taunt is not um, some foreign nation. The object of your taunt is not the guy that got the promotion that you really wanted to get. The object of your taunt is not the bully at school. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to love those who hurt us. 
but we are free to taunt Satan because he has no power over us. And he will soon be condemned. So, there's good biblical precedent for taunting your enemies. Second, the aim of the taunt is God's glory and the proclamation of his gospel. The aim of the taunt is God's glory and the proclamation of his gospel. The taunt is not for us. It's not a proclamation of our victory. It's not a proclamation of our peace. It's a proclamation of God's peace and his victory and his glory and his defeat of death. It's really easy to turn that around and say, look at how great I am. It's really easy to start boasting in ourselves instead of, start, instead of boasting in Christ. But that's a distortion of the words that God has given us. We're called to proclaim God's glory and his gospel. So the aim of the taunt is God's glory and the proclamation of his gospel. And third, laughter drives out sin. Forgiven people are courageous people. Forgiven people have nothing to fear. And if you're in Christ, you're forgiven. If, if you're harboring sin, Satan has a weapon against you. But the glory of the gospel is that you don't have to do that. You can give it to Christ. He's already paid the penalty. And you're forgiven. And that should give you courage. Because the victory is already won. You don't have to fight the battle yourself. Christ has already done it. And so that should give you courage because the king who is already victorious is your champion. He's your hero. And you can rely on him and his faithfulness to save you from your sin. So when Satan brings against you your sin and says, you're not worth anything. What are you to say that you're a Christian. You can laugh at him and say, no, no, no. Jesus has already paid for that. Jesus has already paid for my sin and there's no accusation that you can bring against me because he's already done it. And so that's your holy sense of humor. You can laugh at the devil. You can laugh at sin. You can laugh at death. Because you're united with God and Christ. And he sits in heaven and he laughs at the earthly powers and he says, all your power is from me. And you can do nothing to overthrow my people, to overthrow my purposes. So this is the call of God. Live as a renewed people. Live as a joyful people. Live as a people who are forgiven. And live as a people of courage. And laugh at the devil. Death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your victory? Death has no hold on us anymore. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.